Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, He is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and even and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. On June 16th, 1858 in Springfield, Illinois, a tall gangly man accepted the Republican Party's nomination to become the state's next senator. He began his acceptance speech with these words. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this nation's government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. It will become all one thing or all the other. This address, known to history as the House Divided Speech, helped to propel Abraham Lincoln into the national spotlight. And of course, three years later, he entered the White House itself, where his ominous prediction would be tested and vindicated as the House of America collapsed under the weight of division into civil war. But this image was not original to Lincoln. He had gotten it from Jesus and from Jesus in our passage this morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, we are in a series titled Jesus Immediately, because Mark wastes no time. If any of the Gospels could be described as a page-turner, it would be the Gospel according to Mark. It's fast-paced, action-packed, and Mark is expediting our encounter on page after page with his central character, Jesus Christ. I have three points that I want to think about with you from these verses. Mark 3, verses 20 to 30. Mark 3, verses 20 to 30, which we just heard read, and the three points are the unconvinced family, the unreasonable charge, and the unforgivable sin. The unconvinced family, the unreasonable charge, and the unforgivable sin. First, the unconvinced family. Look there at Mark 3, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. 
When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Here we get a brief snapshot into the family dynamics of Jesus. Mark does not tantalize us with details of celebrity gossip, but what's clear is that Jesus' own brothers and sisters think he's mad, and that the attention he's receiving is overblown and unwarranted. It seems they're embarrassed to be associated with him, with the man behind all the buzz. So they show up to intervene and extract him from this ridiculous situation. And it's easy to scoff at this perspective on Jesus, that he's insane. But, you know, this conclusion that Jesus is insane is actually more intellectually respectable than the really popular conclusion today that Jesus was just a wonderful teacher of love and peace. Why do I say that? Why would it be more intellectually honest, more intellectually responsible to conclude that Jesus was crazy than that he was merely a wonderful teacher of peace and love? Well, his family rightly understood something. They rightly understood, unlike many modern-day street-level skeptics, his family understood that categorizing Jesus as just a good moral teacher wasn't an option. It wasn't even on the table because of the nature of his claims, the crazy things he was asserting about himself. I mean, already in Mark's gospel, if you've been with us over the course of these weeks, you know this. In Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus claim crazy stuff. For example, to have the singular authority on earth to forgive sins, which was the prerogative of God alone. In the Gospels, Jesus never once declines worship. Never once says, oh man, I, I, I think people are perhaps misunderstanding my intent. They're falling on their faces and worshiping me. Let me correct the record. Let me clarify things. This is blasphemy. Get up, guys. He never says that. He claims things like, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the door, he says, the only way in, the only way of entrance into the presence of a holy God. I mean, just think about that one claim for a moment. I am the door, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's worth thinking about because that is the very kind of claim that gets Christians in trouble today. That claim either has already or will eventually get you called, you labeled narrow, intolerant, bigoted. How dare you claim that there's only one way and even worse, that you found it. Who do you think you are? So Jesus' family actually isn't utterly insane for concluding he's insane. They're just listening carefully to what he's claiming. 
And they can't bring themselves as devout Jews to believe that this man with whom they've spent all these years is in fact Yahweh, the God of Israel. So either Jesus is wrong in what he claims, things like the Son of Man has authority on earth, on earth to forgive sins, Mark 2, or I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the door. Either he's wrong, which means that he is vastly inferior to all other religious founders, none of whom made such crazy, audacious claims about themselves. Other religious founders made claims that were far more tepid, far more tame, far more reasonable. So if Jesus is wrong in what he's saying about himself, then he's vastly inferior to every other religious founder. But if he's correct, then he's vastly superior to them. There simply is no other option available. I mean, it's not just Mark 3, by the way, that tells us his family was unconvinced. I want to show this to you. Take your Bibles and turn to John 7, verse 5. John 7, verse 5. There's just a little passing statement. John 7, 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Okay, now turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts is the very next book after John. Acts chapter 1. The earliest believers are gathered together, awaiting the Holy Spirit, and who is present? Who is there believing, praying, awaiting the promised Holy Spirit? Verse 14. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And who else was there? And with his brothers. Two of them, James and Jude, will go on to write New Testament books. So what changed between Mark 3, he's out of his mind. John 7, we don't believe in him. And Acts 1, oh, we believe and we are willing to die for that belief. I'll tell you what changed. They saw their crazy brother die and get up again. The resurrection changed everything everything for the family of Jesus. And the resurrection can change everything for you. Friend, if Christ is who he said he is, and I'm the first to admit as a pastor that if he's not who he said he is, if, if his bones are somewhere in the Middle East, rotting away, then I've wasted my life. Our you all are wasting your lives to be here. RCBC is a fiction. What, what we're about is a fiction. But if he is who he says he is, then following him is actually the sanest 
response available. If you're here and and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I I don't care actually how often you've been in church in your life. I'm not saying if if you're here and you're a longtime churchgoer. I'm saying if you're here and you've never put your trust in Jesus, the most important thing for you to understand this morning is that we are here not to celebrate ourselves. We're not here because we think we've gotten it all figured out and that we're morally superior to everyone else out there. No, we're actually here precisely because we understand ourselves to be so bad, but to have found a really good and sufficient Savior. See, we understand the the Bible to teach that all of us were made for a right relationship with God. He loved us and he created us to enjoy him and to worship him and to serve him forever. But instead of following his plan, we hatched our own. We turned our backs on him. We decided to call the shots ourselves. And the Bible says, all of us like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way. But God in love didn't leave us hopeless in that state of ruin and sin under the sentence of judgment forever, which he could have done and remained infinitely good. But God decided to invade his own creation in the person of Jesus Christ and to be the solution for our sin. So Jesus became what we are not. He lived the life we failed to live. He died the death we deserve to die. And then three days later, he got up again. That's why his brothers began to believe, and that's why you ought to believe, because the tomb is vacant, and Jesus is alive. There's actually no other way to explain compellingly the birth of Christianity and the spread of Christianity apart from an empty tomb. Don't leave today without getting right with God. Don't leave today without getting right with the God who made you, which you can do through simple repentance and faith, turning away from your sin and trusting in Christ. He will gladly welcome you and save you and give you his spirit and the hope of everlasting life with him on a brand new earth. The unconvinced family. Number two, the unreasonable charge Verse 22, look, at, look there. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So things are getting ratcheted up, all right? Not just in terms of what they're saying, but even in terms of how far they're traveling. I mean, look at that. The teachers of the law had come down from Jerusalem. This is the the first kind of official delegation to make the 90-mile trip from Jerusalem to Galilee. The conflict, in other words, has, has grown from being merely this regional squabble to this national event, this national problem. Now, if you're familiar with Palestinian geography, you may wonder why Mark says they're coming down from Jerusalem. And this is one of those things that skeptics will point out to say, look, your Bible can't be trusted. There's errors in regard to all sorts of things, including geography, as evidenced by Mark 3.22. It says they came down from Jerusalem 
even though Jerusalem was to the south? Well, it's actually not that complicated if you understand the way that the biblical authors off, uh, communicated historical truth. Mark is making a statement that is utterly true, both topographically and theologically. So topographically, he's talking about altitude, okay? They are descending in altitude. They are coming down from Jerusalem to Galilee. But theologically, Jews understood Jerusalem to be the center and the pinnacle of the theological world. And so this march from the seat of temple authority in Jerusalem to the little fishing village of Capernaum represents yet another ominous development in the story because the opposition that's arrayed against Jesus is now official in nature. And when they arrive, they waste no time going for the jugular. You, Jesus, are possessed by the prince of demons. That's how you're doing these mighty works. Why do they say there in, in verse 22 that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul and not just by, say, Satan? I mean, Jesus mentioned Satan later in the passage. Why do they use this other term? Well, many of you will have heard of the Canaanite god, Baal or Baal. Well, well that's the root of this word. It, it means something like the, the lord of the house or the, the master of a, of a demonic dynasty. They're saying, Jesus, we've figured you out. We know your secret. You are animated and empowered by a pagan source. And it's by that foreign, unclean, Gentile, Canaanite power that you are managing to drive out all these demons. These guys are desperate. And, and notice, they're refuting, they're, they're not refuting that Jesus is driving out demons. There was no question about whether he was driving out demons. They concede that. Their move, therefore, is to say, okay, we can't deny the obvious that you're a miracle worker, so we're going to dispute the source of your power. It reminds me, speaking of the resurrection, which I just uh, mentioned a few moments ago, it reminds me of what happened at the resurrection, right? No one, and I say this, not, this is not a, what I'm about to say is not a religious statement, it's a historical statement. No one disputed that the tomb was empty. No one disputed that the tomb was empty. But all kinds of theories started popping up to explain away how the tomb became empty. And such theories have endured for 2,000 years. Desperate attempts to explain away what is historically and irrefutably the case Satan has been in this game since the beginning, in the Garden of Eden. All right, let's rewind the clock. He did not slither up to Eve and immediately refute God's words. But he did question them, and therefore he questioned the goodness of the character of the one who had spoken them. Again, 
If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I want to gently and firmly warn you to beware of a heart that wants to explain away biblical truth. If you find yourself desperate in your honest moments, kind of desperate for it not to be true, desperate to find an alternative explanation, desperate to find an objection that you can seize on and lob against Christians in order to keep God at arm's length, then friend, with all respect, you're actually not operating on the basis of rationality, but of faith. I would say blind faith. It's not just the believer who operates on faith. You do too, but in your case, you may be, if you're not careful, planting your life on a wobbly foundation. So Jesus' family thinks he's crazy, but the religious leaders are like, uh, don't let him off so easily. He knows what he's doing. He's not crazy. He's sinister. And because they're there in this kind of official capacity, don't think of this as like a passing whisper. Ah, here's a theory. I think he might, maybe the, maybe the prince of demons is in him. No, this is like their press conference. They've come 90 miles, and this is their conclusion. So how does Jesus respond to the charge, this charge that he's working for the devil by driving out devils? Verse 23. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. We could call the religious leaders logic that they're bringing in this attack on Jesus. We could call their logic elementary. But that would be an insult to elementary school students. I mean, These men, again, are desperate. They are grasping at straws, and Jesus points to the absurdity of their accusation. If what they say is true, let's just, you know, trace it out logically. If what they say is true, then Jesus is working at cross purposes with himself. That's a recipe for implosion, not success. So Jesus kind of marshals these metaphors to say, look guys, if I'm on team Satan, then wouldn't I be putting demons into people rather than driving them out? If I'm demonic, why am I going about my days giving people relief from demons? These guys were not unintelligent. It's just worth recognizing that sin is always fundamentally irrational. Sin is always fundamentally irrational. Even in an otherwise brilliant person, a spiritually darkened mind will generate deluded thoughts about the most important things in the universe. I know I'm addressing the unbeliever a lot today, but I think, I think the passage warrants it. I'll just briefly say again to you, friend, if you're here, beware of trying to avoid God with sophisticated arguments. I'm not encouraging you to think in a simple-minded manner. I'm saying 
beware of trying to create this kind of scaffolding of com complex and sophisticated ways to not have to do business with God. Just because something is sophisticated doesn't mean it's logical, and just because something sounds complicated doesn't mean it's cogent, doesn't mean it's compelling. Well, Jesus is not done. He's got one more word picture for these guys. Verse 27, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. So he's like, I'll raise you one. Not only am, am I not in league with Satan, but I've actually come to put him in shackles and liberate his captives. You want to talk about kingdoms not standing? His is about to collapse because the Messiah is here. And I've got a demolition project to accomplish. Take your Bibles and turn back with me to the the third chapter in the whole Bible, Genesis chapter 3. I hate to rank Old Testament Bible verses, but it is hard to find one that's more pregnant with importance than this. Adam and Eve have just rebelled against God. The curse of sin has spoiled God's beautiful world. And he, God, in his justice, is pronouncing judgments on the guilty. And here's what he says to Satan, the, the deceiving serpent. Genesis 3, 15. And I will put enmity, that is hostility, antagonism, hatred. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and hers. They... No, it's not they. He switches to first person, uh, third person singular. He, singular, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Theologians have called this the, the proto-evangelion, the first gospel, because here we are at the very beginning of the human story amid the rubble and the wreckage of sin, and God gives this glimmer of hope. He says that one day there is going to be a singular male descendant in the line of Eve who will deliver a death blow to Satan and himself be wounded in the process. Do you realize that most of your Bible is a footnote to Genesis 3.15? Does that sound familiar, this promise? Turn back now to Mark chapter 3. In verse 27, Jesus is claiming for himself the role of this ancient serpent crusher. See what he says there. Mark 3, 27. No one can enter a strong man's house. Now pause. Jesus, we should note, is acknowledging in this illustration, that Satan is not a weakling. He likens Satan to a strong man. There, there's no use denying or minimizing. There's nothing spiritual about minimizing the power of the devil. Jesus calls him here the prince of demons, or, or rather he's called here the, the prince of demons. He's the captain of the, de 
the, the satanic forces. Jesus isn't denying that Satan is the prince of demons and that he, to use biblical language from elsewhere, holds this exalted and powerful position. John 12, the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this age. Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air. The devil is not a being to be trifled with. He wreaks havoc. And yet the point of this passage is that he has finally met his match and more. No one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. So, so the image Jesus is sketching is the world, like humans, in bondage, hopeless bondage to Satan's power. But something is different now, according to Jesus. There's a new chapter in the story. There is a new day dawning because someone stronger has kicked down the door and is moving in with invincible handcuffs and a bound slave master. A bound slave master cannot prevent the liberation of those who were formerly under his strength and spell. So if I'm working for, so if I'm not working for Satan, Jesus is saying, because that's logically incoherent, if I'm not working for Satan, there is another explanation. There is another explanation for the miracles you're seeing. It's that I've bound him and I'm pillaging his house. Jesus is saying this isn't a civil war within Satan's ranks. This is a direct onslaught from the outside. I'm in charge now and it's time for the Lord of the house to yield to the Lord of the world. I also think Jesus, in, here in verse 27, is echoing the prophecy of Isaiah 49. Now, you don't need to turn there. I'll just read it for you. But there are, are a couple of verses buried in Isaiah chapter 49 where the prophet says this, Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives rescued from the fierce? The implied answer is no and no. Isaiah 49, 25, but this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. In other words, God is is the divine warrior who will vanquish Israel's enemies and take plunder for his people. And Jesus is saying, I am that divine warrior who is also the ancient snake crusher here to make good on all the promises of God. Incidentally, this image in verse 27 is a picture, isn't it, of progressive sanctification in the life of the believer. That's not Mark's main point, but it's just worth noting that when the Holy Spirit moves in to take up residence within the heart of a believer, he gets to work plundering our sins. And it's not an overnight process, but over the course of our lives, as we rehearse the promises of the gospel, believe the promises of the gospel, rely on the Spirit's help, 
the grip of sin, the grip of idols begins to weaken and to loosen. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 talks about this. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. Again, you don't need to turn there, but listen to these words. Paul writes, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they, that is the weapons we fight with, they have divine power to demolish what? Strongholds. Strongholds. We demolish arguments, Paul says, and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And you want to talk about captivity? We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ Jesus. Sanctification is the spirit of Jesus loving you enough to invade the darkest corners of your heart to deliver you from the stronghold of lies and to plunder the sins that have grown up like barnacles in those dark places. But as I said, it's not an overnight process, which is why we need to temper our expectations when it comes to the level of victory, both in this life and in the advance of the gospel, that we can expect in this life. It's been said that, the, that progressive sanctification is the Bible's get-rich-slow scheme. <laughs> got to get used to the, the journey. You've got to get used to the process, to the waiting, to the struggling, if you're going to make it as a Christian. The unconvinced family, the unreasonable charge, and third and finally, the unforgivable sin. Verse 28, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but, verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. These verses have, for 2,000 years, wreaked havoc in the, in the form of confusion, in some cases, torment and despair in the hearts and the lives of many people, believers and unbelievers. Counselor and author Ed Welch says, quote, pound for pound, the passage on the unpardonable sin can deliver the most guilt in all Scripture. Surely, in a room this size, there are many of you who have deeply struggled, maybe even felt tortured by the thought that you have perhaps committed this sin which God will not forgive. So it's vital that we understand what it does and does not mean. Jesus here is trying to get the religious leaders' attention. This, this is meant to function like smelling salts. Notice he doesn't say they've committed the sin. But he's saying you're on the brink of it. This is a warning. This is like smelling salts to shock them out of their slumber. And that language at the beginning of verse 28, by the way, truly I tell you, that's going to show up 12 other times in Mark's gospel, and this is the first. Jesus says this when he means business. Truly I tell you, listen up. 
So Jesus wants to be heard. It's our job to listen. Let's listen to him. Here, if we look carefully at the context, the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not something that someone commits haphazardly or impulsively. The sin in view, in other words, is not cursing the Holy Spirit. It's not taking the Lord's name in vain. It's not some intrusive thought, some compulsive, sacrilegious thought. We actually have a clue what the unforgivable sin is in verse 30. More than a clue. I think we kind of have the answer. Verse 30 explains verses 28 and 29. Look there. Jesus said this because they were saying something very specific. He has an impure spirit. Not he has the Holy Spirit, but he has a demonic spirit. In other words, these religious leaders were attributing to Satan the work of the Holy Spirit. And notice the crowds aren't in danger of committing this sin. Are the crowds all believers? No. The crowds in Mark's gospel are famous for getting in the way. The beginning of today's passage, you saw that they were you know, uh, uh, massing at the door such that he couldn't even eat. The crowds are a nuisance. They're an inconvenience. They're not coming for the right reasons or with the right motives, but they're not in danger of committing this sin. It is the teachers and the leaders of Israel who should have known better, but are leading those people astray. So the unforgivable sin, that was a lot of throat clearing, admittedly. Here's my definition. The unforgivable sin seems to be an ongoing rejection of the Spirit's witness to Jesus and the settled conclusion that the divine is actually demonic. The unforgivable sin seems to be an ongoing rejection of the Spirit's witness to Jesus and the settled conclusion that the divine is actually demonic. It's understandable that this warning, if it's misunderstood, can send a believer into a tailspin. But, but here's the thing. If, if you're concerned that you've committed the unforgivable sin, that's almost certainly evidence that you have not. Because you care. So someone who is entrenched in this flagrant, willful, high-handed, ongoing sin does not care. A heart that is settled in its hardness against the Spirit of Jesus doesn't go around worrying about it. In his book, his little book on the conscience, uh, titled The Art of Turning, Kevin DeYoung shares a helpful illustration. Imagine that you're walking outside in the winter, you're not dressed for the cold weather, and all of a sudden, a blizzard comes upon you. The temperature drops precipitously, and you are caught in this, uh, in, in this deluge of snow. What is the natural way to respond to such a condition? What are your senses telling you you need to do? 
Well, they're telling you you need to go inside. You need to find a coat. You need to get warm. But imagine that you say, yeah, my house is down the street. I don't feel like walking down there. I'll be just fine in my t-shirt and basketball shorts. And you just continue on your way. You get colder and colder. The snow continues to come down. You continue to kind of just brazenly think, I've got this. I can handle this. People might start, you know, yelling at you like, hey, what are you doing? Put some clothes on. You're going to freeze to death. But you're like, no, no, I, I, I'm going to tough it out. I don't need a coat. So you feel colder and colder and colder until you don't feel anything at all. And at that point, when the frostbite has set in, you actually, it's too late for a coat. You're not going to even want a coat because you're not going to feel cold anymore because you have frozen beyond feeling. Jesus is saying, it is possible for a heart to become so numb, so frozen beyond feeling that they don't even want to entertain the thought of God's mercy. That's what Jesus is talking about. Hear me, friends. He is not talking about a God who is incapable of forgiving, but a heart that has become incapable of repenting. Friend, how you respond to the one in whom God's spirit works is not a matter of indifference. I would be unfaithful if I just sort of put all of your consciences at ease and said, well, don't worry, you haven't committed the unforgivable sin, let's move on. No, one of the lessons, one of the applications that we must draw from this sobering warning is that the way you approach God and the things of God is not a small, light, trifling matter. It is not a thing of indifference. You may not have tomorrow, but you have today, and God loved you enough to cause you to be sitting in a church service. That's how much he loves you. Don't let another day of your life go by without warming your heart beside the fire of the gospel of God's grace. It's not too late to repent and do not presume on his grace. The Anglican uh, Bishop J.C. Ryle put it memorably when he said, at Calvary, there were two thieves on each side of Jesus. One thief was saved so that none might despair, but only one so that none might presume. And if you're still struggling with this, it, whether it's with the unforgivable sin in particular, or if you just struggle as a believer not to be constantly weighed down by guilt and condemnation, 
And I just want to say that th- this is one reason why we do church. This is like one of the, the reasons why God has given us the gift of church membership. Not church attendance, merely. Church membership, covenant church membership, is because it's kind of like an assurance of, co-op, uh, assurance of salvation cooperative. Perhaps you've heard it explained like that before. In other words, left to ourselves, we're going to have all kinds of reason to despair and to distrust God's work within us. But when we're together and others in our lives are taking responsibility for our spiritual welfare and can speak into our lives with words of loving correction and words of timely encouragement, we can be reminded by looking at our baptism and looking at um, the fact that we're being welcomed on an ongoing basis to the Lord's table and the communion of the saints, to use the word of of the creed, we can find comfort in this assurance of salvation cooperative that is local church membership and don't miss the claim here look back at verse 28 don't miss the claim that precedes the unpardonable sin because i think it's easy to so focus on the ominous words of the unforgivable sin that we miss what jesus says at first quote People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. That is astonishing. We don't deserve to have any sins wiped away. Jesus is saying that you can't come up with a sin that he won't forgive if you desire his forgiveness. This claim, of course, anticipates the cross. In Mark 10, 45, we're going to read that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, many people who have committed many, many, many sins. And if you want to play Bible trivia with me this morning, I got one question. How many times in the Bible does someone come to God in repentance requesting forgiveness and get turned away zero there is no such thing biblically as genuinely repenting and seeking forgiveness and being denied by god and you're not going to be the first so if you are riddled and racked with guilt friend it's not because you're taking sin so seriously It's because you're not taking the gospel seriously enough. The door of his grace is wide and any sinner can fit through. Well, in conclusion, you may have noticed the title of my sermon, uh, that kind of famous trilemma was popularized by C.S. Lewis in his uh, classic book, Mere Christianity, which was published seven, 70 years ago this year. And he writes this in Mere Christianity. And I have to think, by the way, before I read his quote, that, that he was reflecting on our passage, especially because he says, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon. So listen to what he says. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. 
I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. In Mark 3, this is exactly what we see. His family thinks he's a lunatic. His opponents think he's a liar and evil. But Mark wants us to see and to believe that he is the Lord. Is that what you believe? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you that the door of your grace is wide and that you are a big savior for big sinners. Lord, we confess that we come up with all kinds of sophisticated ways to keep you at arm's length. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us not to do that. Oh, Lord, don't let us live lives where the frostbite starts to set in. Help us to come near to the fire of your grace. And we praise you for the privilege that we have of doing so this morning as a church family. It's in Jesus' beautiful and sufficient name we pray. Amen.